Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm originally from sunny California, living in beautiful Beijing. Today, we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Mark Levine, heralding from California also. Dr. Levine is a trained sociologist who has turned singer-songwriter, having written more than 70 songs about China and performed in more than 15 provinces on radio and on television. He works as a professor at Minzu University and has written more than 20 articles about China and more than one book, right? Yeah, a couple of books. A couple of books. He's lived in China for nearly two decades and actively seeks to build bridges between the country of his birth, the U.S., and his chosen home, China. Welcome to The Bridge, Dr. Levine. I am thrilled to be here and please call me Mark. Okay, Mark. <laughs> First question, after you got your PhD, you worked as a sociologist, a public sociologist. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you did it? Sure. Actually, the term public sociologist didn't exist exist at the time that I began doing that. And I first heard it when somebody referred to me as that, I think in the 90s, probably late 90s, when I was invited to a uh, sociology conference. But um, after getting my PhD and having taught for a couple of years and looking at what was going on around the United States and changes, economic changes and so on, and without going into the, the, the finer points, basically I decided that changes needed in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to be in a position to be able to do that within the structure of a university mm -hmm. system. So I left. I was teaching in Albany, New York, mm -hmm. was married at the time, had a young child. And we drove from Albany, New York, back to California. Mm -hmm. And throughout the trip, we stopped at all kinds of uh, food co-ops and tenant organizations wow. and uh, organizations that were fighting against police brutality and all different kinds of things. And finally, um, we ended up in visited family and then went up to Lake Tahoe, which I presume you're familiar with, oh, yeah. where I had a friend who was working as the public defender there. And he invited us to stay with him. And I spent a couple of weeks enjoying that experience and chopping wood for him. <laughs> and I had muscles at that time. It was really good. And after two weeks, my wife and I looked at each other and said, this is really nice, but this isn't why we drove across the country. Mm. We went back to the uh, Oakland, Berkeley area, mm. which I'm mm -hmm. sure you're also familiar it's with. It's a this lovely area. 1976, mm. which was a uh, kind of the end of the hotbed of political activity mm. and uh, that Disco. area. <laughs> and we were um, basically found an organization that was organizing uh, on a much broader scale than just tenant unions or against police brutality mm -hmm. and that was trying to work with low-income workers to mm -hmm. not, uh, I said with, not mm -hmm. for, yeah. all right, to build an organization which on the one hand could provide some uh, immediate needs mm -hmm. um, and um, at the same time would actively work to oppose various uh, government policies, whether it be on a state level or a federal level mm -hmm. or a local level, that we saw were only going to make conditions for low-income people worse.
course. Could you give one example? Sure. Well, actually, let me deal with a different kinds sure, of sure. thing. A different uh, example. In the 1980s, in the city of Philadelphia, all right, there was an organization. It was called Move. Move. All right. And if anybody looks up online, M O O V, Move Bombing. And what happened? It was a, a mostly African American organization, and it was kind of countercultural and political. And uh, they had a house in a working class area, a largely black working class area. And they had various run-ins with the police. And suddenly a bomb was dropped by the police on their home. Dropped, like from a helicopter. Helicopter, right? Dropped on their house and the house burned and people were, uh, the fire department came out and the city said, don't put the fire out and let the fire burn. And uh, some people died from the fire. Some people died as they tried to run out and shoot and they were shot. And as a result, uh, not, and some people went to prison, but none of the government officials who dropped a bomb and two square blocks of houses, hmm. working class people's houses were burned. You know, I've seen the photo destroyed. of what you're talking about, but I didn't know the context. Okay. And what happens a lot of times, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, we have a particular tendency in the United States when there is some kind of problem. Usually our first response is, how do, is not, how do we fix this? Our first response, and we saw this with COVID, who do we blame for this? Mm. So there was going back and blaming this particular official, or is it the mayor, or is it the police, or is it the state of Pennsylvania? And in the meantime, people were suffering. Mm. People mm. were suffering. So my organization joined with others mm -hmm. and said, the first thing we have to do, yeah, we've got to deal with who caused this? Who's responsible? It's a terrible thing. And at the same time, our first thing has to deal with the fact that two square blocks of working class people have just had everything they own destroyed. What's going to happen to them? So yeah. we began to organize collections of canned goods and clothing and toys for children mm. and all different kinds of stuff, household supplies and uh, books and organized airlifts from throughout California and Oregon. Most of them were organized from the San Francisco Bay Area, either the San Francisco or the Oakland Airport. And I play, I personally played a key role in terms of getting the airlines. We had about six or seven different airlines, mm -hmm. uh, some freight companies and some passenger airlines who agreed, yeah, we will take, we'll take, give us a ton of, of supplies. Wow. We will take them. We had an affiliated organization in Philadelphia and we would co coordinate bringing them all to the central location and moving those. Mm -hmm. So this is, this was one particular kind of example that we would deal with. Um, wow. So that that's quite impressive. I'm very moved by that. That's yeah. actually similar to the, the what's going on right now in terms of providing aid for earthquake victims yes. in Syria and Turkey. Yes. We also had, um, I don't know, you mentioned you was probably before your time, but in uh, speaking of earthquake, thank you for reminding me of that. 1989, mm. there was an earthquake. In, oh, I remember. It's called the Loma Pre 
create an earthquake. It was south of San Francisco and near Santa Cruz and so on. But the damage was all over. Yeah. I had a, an apartment in San Francisco and the uh, one of the walls along 75 stairs to get to my apartment was no longer flat, right? Had this indentation. Mm. I had, I'm sure you remember, portions of the Bay, a portion yeah. of the Bay Bridge the collapsed. I had a friend who was on the bridge at that time. Fortunately, he was, he was okay. A large section of a freeway collapsed, uh, a double-decker freeway mm. collapsed. And in general, because of um, the availability of engineering technology and money and so on, unlike what's happening today in Turkey and Syria or mm -hmm. what happened in China with the Wenchuan earthquake, mm -hmm. um, we get lots of financial damage, and it, both immediate and long-term, because sometimes businesses are closed, people mm -hmm. lose their jobs. The actual loss of life tends to be a much smaller one in the U.S. for earthquakes, but mm -hmm. still people are losing their lives. Mm -hmm. so, so as a result, one of the things that we dealt with was uh, and the primary uh, government organization responsible at the federal level is called the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and they are supposed to provide aid. And they mm -hmm. tended to provide some aid, but working class communities and minority communities mm -hmm. tended to get almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, people were given what were called grants. And a year later, they got a, message, a letter saying, well, your grant has been converted to a loan. So now you have to pay it back. So we did a massive amount of both advocacy. Illegal ex post facto? Not when the government doesn't. And wow. you got to have the resources to fight those things. I'm not saying government doesn't do illegal things, of course, but you got to have resources to fight it. Hmm. All right. And so that's what happened. This happened with Hurricane Katrina, all kinds of natural disasters. And Sounds like very important work that you were doing. Yeah. So we, we were doing, I basically did disaster relief, not digging people out of uh, fallen, collapsed buildings, but providing various resources, organizing mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. resources, and at the same time doing a lot of advocacy, all right, to get the government to do what the government was supposed to do. You're listening to The Bridge. Well, my next question was going to be, do you feel like you've made a meaningful impact? But I think that it's clear to anyone listening that the answer is yes. But would you like to elaborate on that? Uh, yes and no. Why do I say no? Because we have to look at what exists today. So in the long run, we didn't particularly solve, permanently solve problems. And that was our objective, was to mm. permanently solve the problems of low-income workers and their families in the mm. United States. On the level of individuals and various communities during the time period that I was I was participating oh yes very 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 much so mm. we had uh, another instance um, we had one of our our volunteers were 100% volunteer including <laughs> me my position was no different than anybody else even though I had a PhD in a university education and many of our our volunteers be, were people who had been domestic workers or farm workers or unemployed mm -hmm. people themselves as well as students and housewives and doctors mm -hmm. and so on. But um, we certainly had one, you need pro bono lawyers as well. Uh, yeah. To yeah. Stand and, up for people's um, rights. 
So one of our volunteers, our organizers, had been a domestic worker and had worked uh, in various social service offices. And um, she was in her 60s and she developed a tumor. Mm -hmm. And she went to, um, she was on the Medi-Cal program, which is a state provided program for medical care, which has serious limitations. And she was living in Oakland where our office was actually based. And she went to the county hospital in Oakland and she went there and they did examinations and they said, you have this brain tumor. And the doctor doctor said, that's it, got this brain tumor. And the family is there and they're saying, what can you do? And they're saying nothing. And she's in her 60s and she's poor and she's old and she's black and just, we really want to help her and give her a longer life. And the, the hospitals have these special people. They're called utilization and review, or at least they were at the time. And what they would come in and do and say, well, possibly something could be done, but we don't have the resources for that. So why are you being so selfish? She had a long life. Why don't you just let her go? All right. You're just doing this for your own sake. And this was, I was in meetings where mm-hmm. I heard these people from the hospital. They're not medical staff. Mm-hmm. They deal with the government, the link claims. between, yes, but this was the government insurance, mm. right? And we worked with another organization of medical professionals to help. Uh, we advocated, okay, we want to get a second opinion, mm-hmm. okay? And there is a doctor across the bay in San Francisco mm-hmm. who specializes in this. He is the person who wrote the book on this particular kind of tumor mm-hmm. and the brain and he should get the opportunity to examine her. Mm. So that meant moving her to another hospital. So you have to deal, first of all, the doctor in the hospital who was there where she was mm-hmm. has to approve that. Mm. All right. And he said, I want to prove it. And he said, don't you believe she has a second opinion? Uh, has the right to a second opinion? And he says, yes, if she can pay for it. So um, she wouldn't be allowed to be released. Unless she could pay and the then, Medicaid Unless back. she could pay the money for that. And not just back, but to transfer no, and everything. Mm-hmm. And Medicaid uh, care or Medi-Cal then wouldn't pay for the service in the hospital. This was at mm-hmm. uh, University of San Francisco, yeah. um, the big One medical the center. One of hospitals. For hosp- yeah. And it's, it's all a medical university. And finally, after discussions with uh, the man who wrote the book, mm. he said, oh, this is wrong. This mm. is wrong. And Morally he, and ethically He contacted. Wrong. And he says, and maybe there's nothing that can be done. Mm. He contacted the other doctor. Mm. And the other doctor, of course, knew him and knew of his status in the field. Mm. And he said, you're going to release her. <laughs> and you're going to transfer her to San Francisco, mm. to the University of San Francisco Hospital. So finally, the man under that pressure which we were able to help organize. Mm. She was released. Doctor looked at her and said, let's schedule a surgery. Mm. They scheduled a surgery. And she was able to live 10 years longer Mm. and was able to interact with her grandchildren Mm. and her children, right? And the grandchildren. And she was not as mobile Mm -hmm. and not as uh, uh, lucid and Mm -hmm. clear as she had been previously. Mm -hmm. But she knew who we were. She was able to talk. She was able to enjoy the presence of her family. Mm. 
play with her her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a variety of instances like that. But we mm-hmm. also dealt with larger scales things, food distributions, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and it wasn't just helping to get medical resources, optical resources, dental resources, yeah. clothing. You know, people who had job interviews, but they couldn't get they couldn't even go for an interview because they didn't have appropriate clothes for right. it. Yeah. So we would we would organize uh, clothing drives at schools and at churches. Mm. Or we would get a clothing store saying, can you give this man a suit? Yeah. Right? Because it's going to help him get a job, Changes which is his life not just his life. Yeah. It's your life. Why? Because now he's working. He yeah. can pay taxes. He can buy things. Right? So a lot of our interaction was not just with a low-income community, but mm. it was also with business people. Mm. You know, that the more money exists in this community, the more people that have a, an income, mm-hmm. well, you know what's going to happen in your neighborhood? Crime's going to go down. Yeah. Your insurance costs will go down. This is from the you'll sociology more, PhD. <laughs> you'll get more customers. Yeah. All right. And you'll live in a just happier and more comfortable and safer neighborhood. Mm. And that's going to be good for everybody, not just them, you. So we're doing this. So this, you're part of this. In your 2021 book, Singing My China Stories to the World, you mentioned coming to China for a year and deciding to stay. Could you walk us through that decision? Uh, to stay? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was well, all, why did you come to China? And why I did you came, stay? Well, many of the my colleagues or comrades who I was working with had somebody first had an opportunity to come to teach for a summer. And one person came and came back, amazing stories and experience. Mm. And she had been in the south of China in Guangzhou, uh, Guangxi province mm. for a summer camp. And then then another one, one or two came to China for a semester to mm. teach in different places, a couple in Langfang and uh, somebody else somewhere else and they would come back and they would tell these stories and mm. we were trying to and somebody suggested well why don't you take some time and you go mm. and see what you can learn and see what on the one hand what you can learn and on the other hand see what you can teach and there were all these opportunities this was I came in 2005 and this was in the f- few years before the 2008 I was Olympics say, yeah. and I didn't come to Beijing I went to Jiangsu province mm-hmm. city of Huai'an and people would say are you going to go to the Olympics? And I'd mm-hmm. say, are you kidding? Number one, I'm only here for a year. And number two, I'm not in Beijing. I'm yeah. several provinces away. So um, that was not part of the deal. But what was happening prior to the Olympics, there was already a lot of English education going on in schools. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, there was an expansion because China and Chinese people are wonderful hosts. Mm-hmm. So in order to be a good host, you want they wanted to have more and more people be able to speak Mm -hmm. uh, English. So while I was in Jiangsu province, in addition to teaching at the at the teacher's college, and I taught a little bit of primary school and summer camps, and I taught for uh, Jiangsu off uh, oil field exploration team. And wow. then when I came to uh, Beijing, I taught uh, Bank of China and Jishuatan Hospital Nurses and China Post. And I had other friends who were teaching police officers, taxi drivers. So there was just everybody's got to be ready to speak English because we're mm. going to get a lot of visitors mm. and we want to be able to communicate with them. Mm. Makes perfect sense. So I came for a year and I was in, as I mentioned, Jiangsu province. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a teacher's college. Most of the people, the students came from Jiangsu province. And this is in the northern part of the province. Jiangsu is one of the wealthiest provinces. 
in China. And as was noted in Xi Jinping's speech, uh, his report to the 20, 20th Party uh, Congress, he talked about the special role that Jiangsu province was playing in terms mm. of overall development. This We were in the northern part of Jiangsu, which at the time was much less developed mm. than the south. Mm -hmm. All right. Although that's changed a bit. And there were two things that confronted me. By the time my year was almost over. Mm -hmm. I decided, one, it was very nice. I enjoyed it. People were very welcoming. I got to learn a lot. But there were two things that were of great concern to me. Mm -hmm. Number one, anytime I would mention I was from the United States, people would almost automatically, and with students, it was pretty automatic. They would say, ah, the United States, everybody is rich there. Mm. We have to, we need to become like the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, number one, I'm a sociologist. I mm -hmm. studied social stratification, mm -hmm. right? I understand the fact that everybody in the United States is not rich. Mm -hmm. I understood it from a theoretical perspective, <laughs> a historical perspective. But again, I had just spent 30 years working and living mm. in the poorest communities of my country, mm. our country, and I knew it from a firsthand practical mm. experience perspective. And I said, this is a problem. Yeah. People think this. And it's particularly a problem that people then want to become like that. Mm. All right. So that was problem number one. Sometimes I would ask, why do you think everybody is so rich? And they'd say, so many people have cars. Mm. And I would talk about how in San Francisco, the people who cleaned hotel rooms did not make enough money to live in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And more and more, they were living in Fresno, mm -hmm. Stockton. Yeah. Right. And you know what mass transit is like. That commute. Oh. And therefore, how are you going to get there? Mm -hmm. Got to have a car. Mm -hmm. So I was explaining the last car I had was 14 years old when I got it. <laughs> right. And I was lucky because it ran well. So people in most places in the United States, it's not a luxury at all. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute necessity. Necessity. Mm. So otherwise, you don't have work. And if you don't have work, how are you going to live? So people would have to travel long distances, all right, on a daily basis. Mm. And uh, even with my car, I am not a religious person, but I would be praying every day that the car <laughs> doesn't break down because then you have to deal with the, ex the inconvenience and the expense of getting it off the road and getting it repaired. Mm. And what do I do while the car is broken mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. So that was problem number one. Number two, I had given, I was teaching a class, I had two classes of third year English majors and they were, it was writing, English writing, advanced writing. And I decided to give them an essay. You may be familiar with this. A lot of people are, including a lot of Chinese people. I was surprised. It's an essay by Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher. Mm. comes from his memoirs written, I don't know, in his 70s or something. Mm. I don't know how old he was. And there's this very sharp, sharp passage. It's known by a couple of names. One is what I lived for. And another one is, I can't remember, love, something, beauty. Um, and I gave them this, what I lived for, less than one page. I said, please read this. And then I want you to write, imagine yourself 50 or 60 years in the future mm. and write what I lived for. 
and I had 75 students. One of them said, when I was young, disabled people were not treated well. So I committed myself to do something to change that. Mm. Two of them said, there's a terrible gap between income and living conditions between the city and the countryside. And I want to do something to elevate those who mm. are poor and worse living conditions. Mm. And 72 students said, I live to have a good life for me and my family. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. Everybody wants that, all right? But this was less than 60 years before the founding of the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. And I realized I understand it, but it's a problem mm -hmm. because nobody is thinking about anybody else, mm -hmm. right? And I can have a good life for me and my family. And I sometimes I'll give the example I'm, I got a job, I'm making $100 an hour, and I'm doing great. I think I'm really special. I'm smart. You have no job. Mm -hmm. Right. Some equipment is brought in so that some of my skills can now be made. You done through technology. My boss doesn't want to pay so much money anymore. Comes to you. Maybe you're even my friend. Says, how'd you like a job? Mm. I'll give you $10 an hour. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't want to harm me, but you know what? You got a family. You need to take care of your family. So you're going to take it. So I thought I was so special. Mm. I'm not special anymore because now you're doing my job and I no longer have a job. So I have to think about you. You have to think about me. Mm -hmm. We're in this together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's what I was hearing from my students mm -hmm. is that they were in it for themselves mm -hmm. only rather than we will rise together. Right. Okay. And after hearing that and realizing about the misunderstanding of the concept of everyone being wealthy in the United States, I realized I have some work to do and I need to stay in China. Hmm. And the work I need to do is not really teaching English, but I can use English to teach that. Mm -hmm. So I decided to stay. And this was a personal a personal struggle because I was planning to go back yeah. right, to continue what I had been doing for 30 years. So you transitioned from United one States. kind of helping to another kind of help. We in, can in say that, place. yeah. And my circumstances of life are obviously completely different. I was a full-time volunteer. Right now, that opportunity isn't here. So I, I have an income, I have a place to live and so on. That was the reason that I stayed. That mm. was my purpose for staying. And that is something I continued to do. While I, I teach a variety of things, but I always in, try to incorporate the understanding of those principles that mm. I was talking about mm. into whatever it is I am teaching. You're listening to The Bridge. Another thing you are doing and that you've written about in your book is serving as a bridge between our peoples, the people in the United States, where we're from, and the people of China, where we've moved to. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit about your goal and uh, how you've tried to do so? And maybe how other people can also serve as a bridge between the people of the world? Okay. As you know, you cannot listen to news programs, particularly from the U.S. or the U.K. or read any publications these days without talking about the evil China. Mm. And here are all the terrible things about China. Mm. And uh, I, in the uh, beginning of both this book and a book that I wrote in 2014 called Stories from My Chinese Journey, mm. I tell the story of a another 
sociologist, a friend who passed away last year, who was in China for several years. And he came to Beijing the same time I did. Mm. And after he retired, and he used to every day, I would see him, he'd come out of his apartment, we live in the same building. And we talk and he looked so confused. Mm. His name was David. And David would say, I don't understand. I don't understand. it. I'm so confused. I read the New York Times online. And it says, this is bad in China. And that is bad in China. And this is bad. And I come out, I see people laughing, smiling, crying, arguing, eating, doing, playing, all kinds of stuff. He says, it looks nothing like it. It says, it looks more like what I'm familiar with, all right, from other countries. And he had lived in many different countries in the world himself. So I explained that this is kind of an example. And I figured, well, I have had um, some amazing opportunities and experience. Some of it had to deal with my one, uh, just teaching, but some of it had to deal with the fact that when I am somewhere, I try not to be on the outside, mm -hmm. right? So when I was still in Jiangsu province, a small city, you know, I did, I helped the foreign affairs office of, of the city to have, figure out how can we communicate better? Uh, edited things that they had, edited speeches that the mayor was going to give, gave them, I know this is not a good way to say this. Mm -hmm. You don't want to say this. Nobody's going to understand it. People are going to think it's confusing. All right. And I did that there and I continued to do that in various circles. And as I said, I worked with the oil company mm -hmm. and I went and taught first graders on top of my university work and high school students. And I have many students who I met there because I walk around the campus and I see somebody who has an English book and I go up and say, hi, who are you? I'm Mark. And I'd sit down and talk to them and learn about them and not only help them communicate in English. English, but we begin to talk about things that maybe other people didn't, mm. wouldn't normally think about. Mm -hmm. I've been recently, last year, I was doing some, a little bit of online teaching for a law firm, mm -hmm. uh, like an hour a week. And we started with different stuff about law and then I realized, well, they told me, we don't care about law. We're not particularly interested in dealing with law in our classes. And I would give them, we would take some topic, take something out of the news. Mm -hmm. And I'd send it to them and they do some research on it, international stuff, Chinese stuff, stuff from the United States. Mm -hmm. And then they would get together and each, each of the students would, uh, some of them attorneys, some of them not attorneys. Uh, each of them would do a little presentation about it and then we'd have a discussion about it, mm. right? And I've taught and coached public speaking for many, many years. I taught and coached debate for many years. And then I started writing articles, both in English, uh, in English, both about my experience in China and sometimes so the earthquake, mm. right? I wrote an article about that for an English language publication in China. Mm. On top of that, I've written, as you mentioned, it's no longer 70. It's now about 80 songs, <laughs> 80 songs. And they tell, just tell the stories. And the stories are, have a couple of purposes. On the one hand, they tell, and similarly with the book, a lot of times people say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. Oh, I heard about this thing, but oh, you've given me a new perspective mm -hmm. on that, a new way to think about it. And at the same, I had one friend who was teaching in the city of Nantong in Jiangsu province for several years, another American. He's now back in the United States, but he taught there for several years. And 
and he had gotten a copy of my first book and he read the book and he wrote back and he said, Mark, number one, I think that every foreigner, at least every foreign teacher who comes to China, this should be a required reading for them. <laughs> but more significant than that statement was him saying, you know, I've always been a very active person trying to do things, help in community. He had been a restaurant owner and chef and he would, you know, when there was disasters, he would be out there distributing food from the restaurant and all kinds of stuff. He said, I came to China and I've been here and I suddenly realized I've gotten lazy and I've gotten really focused on myself. And he said, you've taught me, you've reminded me what I need to do. And I visited him. I was invited to give, uh, he helped to arrange for me to give a lecture at his university. Mm -hmm. After the lecture, we're walking around the city and he's talking about how he said, see that hotel over there? After reading your book, I went to the hotel and said, can I help your staff learn English? And he started doing a lot of other things within the community, both in yeah. his campus and the community. All right. He says, not only do I need to do something, but I need to show people that Americans are willing to contribute, mm -hmm. not just come here to get something for ourselves, mm -hmm. but also to do something to benefit China and benefit those kinds of relations. So if I could surmise what you've, you've said, giving back to the community as foreigners living in China, yeah. I mean, whatever way that we can, yes. Individuals is, would be different. a great way to build bridges. Oh, absolutely. In uh, 2011, one of my first interviews, before there was CGTN, there was CCTV News. Mm -hmm. And before that, there was CCTV 9, which yeah, the foreign language state. That. So in 2011, uh, I think it was one, I've had a number of interviews before that. Most of them were radio. And I'm not sure if I had other TV interviews, but I know in 2011, I had one. It was at least one of the earliest ones on CCTV 9. CCTV journalist who was I think he's still with CCTV. At the time, he was fairly high up in the ranks of broadcast journalists here. And um, he contacted my friend and agent, Fuhan. He had attended some uh, a show that we had had. And he contacted her and says, is Mark Levine still in Beijing? And she said, yes. And he said, okay, CCTV9 is organizing. They're trying to find an American, one American who lives in Beijing. This is 2011. Mm -hmm. We want to do a little, you know, five minute, four or five minute interview. And so we did that, spent two days. But this was right before then President Hu Jintao went to the United States. So we finished the interview. We're going out to dinner with the journalists. One of the journalists gets the, the main interviewer, gets off the phone as we're walking to the restaurant and says, okay, here's the plan. On the day that President Hu arrives in the United States, we're going to air this video. We are going to air this video. And what we want you to do is to come to the station to appear on China 24, and which was an evening newscast, and we want you to bring your guitar. And what should I play? Well, just a little bit of you figure it out. You figure <laughs> it out. So my agent, Fuhan, who later became my music partner because she plays Arhu while I play yeah. guitar, just really brilliant, really brilliant. And she came up with, she says, I know what you have to play. So the song that I played is a Chinese song and it's called Gunwen Lu Zai Hafang. And Gunwen Lu Zai Hafang is from the TV show made from Journey to the West. Mm, wow. So there's two points of significance here. 
So one, this was President Hu's journey Going to the, the West. West. <laughs> and the other is it's dealing with the question of where is the road? And it's, you're on the road, stay on the road. So had a very, they showed that they had already been airing it throughout the day, like hourly on different stations, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Culture Express, various other shows. They were showing this, but then they showed it again. And then um, I was interviewed. The question was, what needs to be done to bridge yeah. a gap in understanding and so on? And my response was that whatever the governments can do is good. Whatever businesses can do is good. But my position is that it's the person-to-person -person contact. Mm. Me sitting down with this Chinese person mm -hmm. who maybe I don't know or maybe I know. Mm -hmm. And listening to them and them listening to me and us talking and getting to realize, oh, we basically want the same kinds of things. We mm. want people, you know, nobody really wants, well, I don't know that that's true, but nobody, Very let's just say it. Yeah, Very few people really want someone else to go hungry, <clears throat> all right? Yeah. All right, to ha live in terrible circumstances, mm. all right? So, and we need to come to an understanding of that. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is through that individual to individual basis. Mm. So, yes, I absolutely believe that person to person contact. People to people exchanges. Very, very, very critical. The journalist was, uh, he was thrilled. He says, nobody's ever brought it. We've never had music in here before. <laughs> what an exciting thing. You're listening to The Bridge. Can I ask you uh, about an award that you won? It's a very rare award for foreigners who live in China called Friend of China. No, it's called the Friendship Award. Friendship Award. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about yeah. that Yeah, I don't know experience? the number, but I think it's about 2,000 people so far, hmm. I think. The process is about 50 a year, except... Every five years, the years with a four mm -hmm. and the years with a nine. The nine is... Um, Longevity or no luck? Because uh, the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949. Oh. So nine and four. And it's uh, and those years, it's 100. Mm. So I got it in 2014 when there were 100. And the process is it's used to be issued by the State Administration of Foreign Experts Affairs, mm -hmm. which provided the uh, green card, uh, not the green cards, but the work permits and the visas and so on for foreigners, foreign experts who were working here. And then that got subsumed into the Ministry of Science and Technology. So they now issue that award. But people are nominated. Nobody applies. You are mm -hmm. nominated. And it's nominated by whatever government body or institution you are employed by that has authorization to be able to employ a foreigner. Wow. So that for people at universities, the nomination comes from the foreign affairs, the university through the starting with the foreign affairs office. Wow. So I was nominated. Actually, I was nominated three times before I got it. And uh, it was nine, 10, not an 11, 12 or 13 and then 14 mm. for uh, those times. And finally, I received that. And what happens is they narrow selection and then particular representatives of different government ministries or 
agency. So somebody from the Foreign Affairs Office, somebody else, Ministry of Education, and so on at the national level. And they vote. Wow. And you get a certain number of votes, then you get the award. So I got that, and which was quite a thrill, like very exciting. And the award ceremony takes place right before National Day. And uh, first, everybody goes to the uh, where they we were based at the time out of the Foreign Experts Building. Mm-hmm. You know that near I the don't. bird's nest? No. Near the bird's nest. And it's a hotel and mm-hmm. there's some conference rooms and so on. And we're all we're there and then we all took a bus to the Great Hall of the People wow. on the 29th and received the awards, which is a medal and a plaque. And then we went back to the hotel and then the next day we came back. And there's a big photo session and the premier gives a speech. He gave a speech and then afterwards you go to the banquet, the National Day Banquet with 3,000 other people. And the, and the Great Hall of the People. And the 100 recipients. And the one, yeah, and families, people, uh, spouses were also allowed. I have no spouse, so you know, I was there by myself. One of the reasons we invited you on the show, and uh, certainly there are a lot of them, is that you are a singer-songwriter of some note here in China now, and you sing about your life in China. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about how you, go- I mean, obviously you must have played back home in order to be okay. proficient to play guitar. How did you get into you. doing this? Okay, I started playing guitar when I was nine. My mother in particular wanted me to learn an instrument. Have a skill like that. Yeah. Yeah. And unlike many people, it wasn't really pushing. It was trying to encourage. Mm. So her method of encouragement was, we'll learn together. Mm. All right. We'll have lessons together. So we started with an accordion, but it was an adult accordion, too big, Mm. too heavy. I couldn't deal with it. I was like seven. And then we went on to piano, got a piano and the piano teacher would come to the house and he was too drunk. (laughs) So that was the end of the piano. So we had a few lessons and he just reeked of alcohol. So uh, finally, I don't remember how we settled on guitar, but this was at a point in time, but guitar made perfect sense. Guitar, playing guitar became very, very popular, Mm -hmm. particularly for boys. And guitar was very convenient because you can carry it with you, Mm -hmm. unlike a piano, (laughs) and you can sing with it while you're playing. And you can do that with a piano, but it's harder to, you can't, it's hard to do with a violin. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, my parents had a few friends. I didn't have any professional musician, but they had friends who knew how to play guitar. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people and they don't play folk music. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a PhD student studying psychology. And she taught me for about a year. And she was at Cal State Northridge. Mm. And she taught me for about a year. And at the end of that year, she says, taught you everything I know. (laughs) So then we went to another friend who was, I think he was an electrician. And he taught me for four years or five years. Mm. And then finally, I had that taught you everything I know. (laughs) So I tried to figure out what to do and uh, see about taking other lessons and didn't, decided not to. And I actually became a guitar teacher at 15. And I did that for a couple of years and at 17. So at 17, 1965. So I went into the, I joined a couple of the obligatory garage bands. Wow. All right. I had a, a, a junk band and a folk rock band and another one. 
And then finally that all came to an end and I decided, well, music will always be part of my life, but it won't mm -hmm. be my life. And I continued to play, but sometimes I was just too busy. Didn't mm -hmm. play for a year, two years. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, sometimes I'll ask one of my students, do you play an instrument? And they say, well, I used to play the piano, but I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And I never said that. I always said, I play guitar. I've just been too busy, haven't played in a while. <laughs> but I never, I always played other people's music. And when I first came to China, and I'm in Jiangsu province, and I didn't bring a guitar, but I found that it was really easy to borrow guitars mm. because Chinese, many Chinese people are just like many American people. Mm. They say, oh, a guitar should be easy. And then, and it's then dusty. they say, oh, my fingers hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My fingers hurt. <laughs> or they realize it's, you know, it's work. It's yeah. work. So within my first year in Jiangsu province, I was able to borrow three different guitars, which successively got better. <laughs> all right. Because People said, oh, I have a guitar. I'm not playing it. I'm not using it. And the last person let me keep it for like eight months. Mm. All right. So, and then I finally got my own guitars. But, um, and I would play, I'd go after school, I'd go play every day. And mostly I wasn't singing. I was just playing instrument, playing with the guitar, mm. working on the guitar. And then when I was in Jiangsu province and I was planning, I'd been there, I extended to another year. Then I went and told the school, I want to stay again. And they said, sorry. Oh. And I, I stayed for the second and I said, I want to stay for a third year. And they said, sorry, we have, we want to give variety to our students. So we have a policy that foreign language teachers only stay for two years. Wow. That's interesting. So, yeah. And different schools, sometimes schools have age limits. Sometimes they have length of time limits that are, but that was the shortest hmm. that I had seen. And I was replaced by a guy from Scotland, but he only lasted a year because his accent was too difficult for students. Mm. But they want to give, you know, people different teaching styles and different That's a great accents. Idea, and so the principle makes a lot of sense. I was, I spent 24 hours of going through every possible emotion but that can, I could. Can, and I, then can I, I add to that just real quick? Yeah. Because I've actually seen the opposite. A lot of the time people are so, students and their parents are so attached to one teacher that they refuse to let them go. And but like, this I don't the, want to change. This, so not college level. Yeah, yeah. And this was the school. Hmm. This was the school where the parents are actually much less involved. Hmm. A lot of my students' parents know me, even though they don't live in Beijing. Hmm. But um, but at a lower level, in elementary school, I would see that that would be a really strong feature. Where did you make the jump? Okay. So going back through all of this emotion, anger, frustration, sadness, confusion, disbelief, and at last for about 24 hours. And then I said, oh, it's their school. They, of course they can decide who they want to hire. And I went home and sat down just to play my guitar. And a couple of hours later, I found I had written a song. Wow. That the city was called Huayan. And it was, uh, the song was called Huayan Promise of the Future. Because every day, you know, I'd see here's an empty lot. And a month later, there's a building there. That's open. There's a business, not just a building. There's a business going there. And you see old places being cleaned up and renovated and all kinds of stuff. And it was just such an extraordinary experience. Mm. And you could see the future mm. coming. And the song goes through, there were like four districts uh, or four counties that are connected to this city. And I would go through each of these, each verse has one of these counties. Mm. And I talk about the forest or the lake or the things, but the key 
is the promise of the future. And Huayan was the hometown of Zhou Enlai, who was the first premier of the People's Republic of China. Mm. So the, the chorus includes it. This was what Premier Zhou was wanted. There's a lot of information so, in one song. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It was quite an extraordinary song. And it's not that long. It's only a couple minutes long. But immediately after, I had done some work for the Foreign Affairs Office of not just the school, but the city, hmm. because there were not a great many foreigners there. And sometimes they would contact me about helping with some project. And I called them up hmm. and I said, I need to come see you right away. So I printed it out. I brought my guitar. I got down to their office and I said, get, and I started naming other people, get them here, get them here. <laughs> I said, I have a gift for you. So I sang this song. I gave everybody a copy of the lyrics and they said, play it again, play it again. And um, I played it again. And immediately the deputy director of the office looks over at one of his staff members and said, get that translated, get that, do a translation of it. So she not only did a translation, but she then has a friend who is a poet mm. who turned it into something that could be sung mm. uh, in Chinese. I've never sung it in Chinese. I don't know how to <laughs> sing it in Chinese, but apparently it's very beautiful. And um, so this was song number one. Yeah. And um, I came to Beijing and then I started writing more songs. Mm. Now, I have to admit, after uh, until it took a little while, sometimes people say, oh, you're a songwriter. And I said, no, I'm not a songwriter at all, because I didn't plan to write any of these. It was sometimes I'd be walking down the street and lyrics would start pouring into my mind. This is right out of your book. All right. Sometimes <laughs> I'd be, used to be sitting at the guitar and I'd start to sing something and I have mm. to write them down. Mm. Right. After the first dozen or so, I said, I started being able to, okay, I'm going to write a song about this. Mm. And I could write a song about that. Mm. Sometimes I'd be traveling and I'd take a few notes and I'd say, I'm going to write a song about this. Mm. Right. But, and some of them were planned. Some of them weren't planned. Uh, but after the first dozen or so, I said, yeah, I'm a songwriter yeah. because I developed the skill to be able to do it. And then probably at least a half a dozen songs are songs that I was asked to write by someone. Uh, CCTV News. No, or maybe it was, was it CC? It would have been CG, maybe CGTN asked me to write a No, CCTV. It was CCTV4. In 1949, they, uh, they, not 1949. Uh, About 1949? No. Oh, no. 2015. They uh, organized a series of documentaries. I think it was six documentaries, mm. which was originally called Red Dream Chasers, and they later changed it to Red Dream Catchers. Mm. And it was about foreigners who had been in China. Dino Fernando. He, he's one of the people in that documentary. Really? From yeah. where? Uh, he's from Colombia. No, but this was this was Joseph Needham and Edgar Snow and uh, Israel Epstein and, oh, okay. and Norman yes. Bethune. Mm -hmm. About historical. And these were historical figures who had been in China during the War of Resistance mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. Japanese aggression mm -hmm. and their contributions mm -hmm. to that. And there were six of them. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember why. Well, they had come 
contacted me about participating in mm. this. Actually, the first thing they wanted me to do is they wanted me to do a pr talk about Norma Bethune. Mm. So, and they knew I had had some familiarity with some of these foreigners mm -hmm. and their stories. So, uh, they also asked me to write a song about a song for the series, mm -hmm. and which I still call Red Dream Catchers. Mm -hmm. All right. And I think maybe that was the first song I was asked to write by somebody. And I ended up, um, I ended up not being interviewed in the Bethune one. They didn't use the song. Mm -hmm. They used a different song that I wrote about Bethune. And one that was not requested. No, I had already written it and I gave it to them. So they used that in the Bethune story. And, but I was interviewed for the Israel Epstein story. Mm. And at that time I hadn't written a song about Epstein, but I since have. Mm. So about, I've have about six or seven songs about these old foreigners and the Red Dream Chasers was a general overview without mentioning particular people. Wow. But so probably six or seven different songs that I've now written upon request. Um, you have, I've seen you perform on stage in front of what looks like hundreds and hundreds of people. So you have toured 15 provinces. Uh, I've performing. sung in 16. 16 I've, I've been in 29. Hmm. Could you tell a little bit about what it's like performing for uh, an audience here in China, your music? Um, it's very exciting. And in the early days, it was quite, again, I hadn't particularly been, you know, I play guitar. I Every once in a while, I would perform in the United States, me usually for some kind of benefit to hmm. raise funds for our organization, but not very common. And often they were most of the people I would know or many of the people I would know or so on. And uh, so when I first started, it was kind of a little nervous. But, you know, <laughs> ultimately I have to, I was just explaining to someone who asked me to do something and I had to say, you know, I have to admit, and I, I do, I've done a lot of presentations. I've lectured, given lectures at, in addition to teaching yeah, at more than 65 Chinese universities, some of them many, many times. And I've spoken at other kinds of activities and events and so on. And I just love being on stage. <laughs> I just love being on stage. You mean as stage. a guitar singer? Or speaker? Capacity, any capacity yeah. teacher right i think i told you i'm dying to get back into a classroom i'm <laughs> dying my classes don't start uh, for another week and the vacation was too long i need to be back in a classroom i just i just get energy from it and part of what happened in the stage i think maybe the photo that you saw with the really big audience mm -hmm. that was one i've had four performances with 40 50 60 000 people wow in the audience wow Not quite chase stadium in the Beatles, but uh, really extraordinary things, great experiences. And I perform my songs. Every once in a while, I perform something else. In the early days, people always wanted take me home, country roads. <laughs> and I can sing that, but it's not my preference. And uh, But one of the things that uh, Fuhan uh, long ago said, you know what? It's good. You sing your songs. It's great. Tell these stories, but you got to sing some Chinese songs. Can you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's why I said I sang Ganwen Lu Tai Hafang. Wow, well, I didn't right? know you Chinese. sang it. I, oh, I can sing a lot of Chinese wow. songs. The hardest part, and say, I have a whole process through which I learn. I don't speak Chinese. Mm -hmm. I don't read Chinese. You've so, learned some from singing. A few uh, words, tiny. some phrases. Yeah, very tiny. 
but my pronunciation is pretty good. <laughs> my pronunciation is pretty good because Fuhan not only so now I can if I can hear a song, I ask somebody, uh, I need the MP3 of the song hmm. so I can play it over and over and over. And then I get the words, and if I can't find them in Pinyin and only in characters, I'll send it to somebody and say, put this in Pinyin for me, please. I have a lot of students who will help me that way. Mm-hmm. And then I have to learn how to play it on guitar mm-hmm. because if I play it on guitar, I can control the key mm-hmm. and I can control the tempo. Mm. And I need to do that. And then I have to learn the phrasing. So I'll just over and over and I'll play along with it and over and over with the phrasing. Sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And the hardest part is remembering the lyrics, <laughs> which is all done phonetically. Mm. All right. And that's the hardest part. And I can sing a number of songs, you know, that I've remembered, but some of my recently learned that I haven't played them in two years. So my memory isn't particularly good on those. But if I have the lyrics in front of me in mm-hmm. Pinyin, I could sing 40, 50, 60 songs wow, right now. Very impressive. Okay. Well, we've asked you to bring your guitar along. I got one. You have, them. yeah, you've brought one. Very one. accommodating, very kind of you. Would you play us one of your songs today? Um, this was one that wasn't originally intentionally written, but uh, no, I won't sing that one. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, but it's the same. It Singer's was one choice. that wasn't intentionally written at all. The reason I decided to sing this instead is it has some Chinese. Okay, great. Right. Then we get everything. Now, I have a lot of, I've had a lot of contact with CCTV and CGTN, Mm -hmm. various capacity. And in 2009, I was fortunate enough to go on a TV show, Mm -hmm. which in English is called Star Road. Mm -hmm. Chinese, it's Xinguan Dadao. All right. And it is a combination of a talent show and an entertainment show. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you want to show off your talent. But the director from CCTV decides, is this entertaining? Yeah. Nope. You need more musicians. Nope. Those are not the clothes to wear. No. <laughs> uh, no, you're not going to sing that song. You got to sing a different song. No, it, all kinds of stuff. So you have to learn to cooperate with yeah. that. Yeah. And I said, I was only on one show. I came in second. And um, when I, I had to try out and various, did various things. And finally, when they said, yes, want you. And I said, okay, there's one condition however I have and it's a possible of you know it starts with a weekly show and if you win that you go to a monthly show and if you win that you go to a national annual show so I said whatever sh- number of shows I'm on I want to sing one of my songs hmm. and the response was no problem except you are going to sing you either need to sing a Chinese song or whatever song you sing must have Chinese in it wow so hence this song so we had to get it translated and not only did we need to translate it, but then when I'm doing it, they, she said, you need some background singers. So I'm thinking of the Supremes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of the Supremes, but no, Chinese songs. And yeah, and uh, what then happened was um, my agent found three young Chinese female singers None of whom spoke English, none of whom have ever sung English, <laughs> and who didn't know each other. <laughs> but they were all represented by the same agent. They worked out okay. And they all went on the TV show with me. Like when the moon controls the sky, my love for you, I can't deny. With your every wish, I will comply. 
just for you, my lovely Asian eyes. On the day we met, you stole my heart. I knew from you I would never part. As our love grew, it was no surprise. Just for you, my lovely Asian eye. sing it the way it's on the tv show the tv show it's very slow <laughs> yes yeah, so you change the tempo for i your... change the tempo and uh one last thing about that particular song if i'm invited to some activity to sing one song that's this unless somebody who had that's a specific the <laughs> that's the song thank you or if i have a longer show then 
That's the mm. first song. Mm. That's the first song. To get everyone on board. Yes. Yeah. It's very, it's and then I can go into it. And every Chinese people are very excited. <laughs> and sometimes people will sing with me. Wow. And I'll sing it twice. And I'll ask them, Ichi Next time you have a big performance, can you invite me? I'd love to see this. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. I had a great time. Yeah, me too. Very good. Very good. 